Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Introducing Carissa Green Industries. Let's get ready to launch. Andrew Bycroft. Andrew is an experienced security expert that works with executives to help them understand the landscape of cyber risk and what they can do to minimize the threats to their organizations. He is now the author of The Cyber Intelligent Executive, co-author of Adapt or Die, and author of the upcoming book, Protecting Your Most Critical Asset. Andrew is also a prolific speaker, contributing to his knowledge to more than 20 conferences each year. In addition, Andrew is the co-founder and CEO of the International Cyber Resilience Institute, a cyber risk advisory for company directors and executives whose clients receive peace of mind that their personal reputation will survive even the worst of any cyber breach imaginable. Hey Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on my show today. How are you doing? Uh, Really good, thanks Carissa. So, Andrew, tell us about your background. How did you end up in the current function? I know you've been in this game for quite some time, so I'm, I'm really keen to hear the journey. Okay, well, I guess it goes back about 25 years. And for the first 20 years of my career, I found that I was working either in post-sales or pre-sales, even in a sales role. And despite all of the changes that I was making, it just didn't seem to be addressing the cybercrime problem. In fact, cybercrime was increasing at such a phenomenal rate and more money was being spent on the problem every year. And it just seemed like I'd wasted my career. I I was really um, disheartened by it. And the final straw was when I was coming back from um, a trip to China with my family. And at the time, I only had one daughter. I've got two now. And she was um, not quite two at the time. And it sort of hit me as I was getting off the plane that I would have to go back to work the very next day. And when I looked at my daughter, I thought, all of this change that I've made has been for nothing. And what's the world going to be like when she actually reaches adulthood if we let cybercrime continue at the rate that it is? And I sort of had an epiphany and decided I actually need to solve this problem. I'm tired of throwing all of my time and energy at a problem that just doesn't seem to be solved. And on that spot, I decided that I would have the belief that cybercrime could actually be reduced to level of insignificance. Now, that seems to sort of buck the trend of what most people would believe, but I believe that it is possible to achieve that. So I actually set about achieving that. And it took about five years of research to actually get to the bottom of the problem. And the problem is that it's not actually a technological issue. It's actually a psychological issue. That's what we really need to be solving. And now today, five years after I started my research, I've got all of the answers. I've put those to the test. And all of those companies that I've been working with, they have actually been able to reduce cybercrime Um, almost to a level of insignificance. And they've been spending a lot less than what they did in the past to achieve that. 
And just to go back, now when you said you were coming back from China on a family vacation, you're looking at your daughter. What was sort of going through your head, like when you said you had this epiphany? Like, was it that the whole world was on fire because of all the cybercrime? But what what was sort of that visual that you had in your head when you were looking at your daughter? Um, it was more just, a, I guess, it was a horrific sort of thought as to what the world might be like um, in. 10 or 15 years' time if we let cybercrime increase. I mean, one of the analogies that I use nowadays to explain how fast cybercrime is increasing is I actually ask people, would you pay $120 for a two-litre bottle of milk? And they look at me like I'm insane. But then I tell them that if cybercrime um, – so, sorry, let me go back. If inflation increased at the same rate as cybercrime, that's what we'd be paying for a bottle of milk in 2030. Um, so when people realise just how fast it is increasing, they start to panic. Um, they've never actually thought about it in those terms before. I mean, we can throw the actual numbers at them, but nobody really knows what $30 trillion looks like by 2030, for example. Um, it's it's very hard to visualise that sort of money. But when you talk about it in terms of um, comparing it to inflation, for example, it sort of makes a lot of sense. It's, it's quite scary. And that was the sort of thing that was going through my mind at the time, that if we don't do something about it, it's probably going to be a very horrible world in the future. Absolutely. And I know that you spoke just before about it's more of a psychological thing rather than a technology problem. Now, as you are aware, there's a lot of you know products and services on the market. So can you explain a little bit more from your perspective on what that means and, and what you know people who are in that executive uh, level should be looking at and not being sort of, you know, pulled into the whole, it's all technology problems. Yeah, well, the best way to put it is that today, one of the main causes as to why cybercrime is at this pandemic level is because we've actually started by throwing technology at the problem. Then what we've been trying to do beyond throwing technology at it is finding people to go and manage that technology. Now, that may be outsourcing it or it may actually be trying to recruit the right people. Then what we tend to do is we tend to get those people to develop processes that explain what they're doing. And that's usually where they get stuck. For a start, they're not very good at developing the processes. And even if they do manage to document those somehow and follow those, then what they're trying to do is communicate the output of what they're doing upstream to the board of directors. What I have found is that if we flip it around and technology is that little bit we do at the end to enable people, what we're doing is we're starting with culture. Then what we're doing is we're allowing culture to dictate the type of communications that need to be made across the entire organization. Then we actually use processes um, which map quite nicely to the communication that we're using. Then we go and recruit people to go and carry out those processes that have already been defined. And then finally, technology is the little bit at the end that enables the people to do their jobs and to carry out those processes as efficiently as possible. So if we flip the model around and we actually build the foundations before we try to build the roof, we end up with a much more successful outcome. And how do you think sort of executives at the moment, are they sort of just thinking, you know, tech is going to save, you know, solve all my problems? Is that sort of how people in the market are communicating that in terms of buying into that vision and that your problems will be solved? 
They tend to think that, and the problem goes back to probably around about the mid-90s when cybercrime started to become an issue. If you think about it, crime always follows the money, and when money went online because of the likes of um, eBay starting up, Amazon, um, online banking sort of came into fruition around the late 90s, um, obviously money went online and therefore crime went online. And at the time, because the average organization only had a handful of computers and those computers were mostly used by IT, they sort of correlated that, well, it must be a technology thing. And the problem is that's stuck with us ever since. Now, in recent mm. times, I think a lot of executives, a lot of boards have started to realize that there is a people element to it. But the problem is that they're not actually um, – cultivating the culture that needs to be in place to get people to do the right jobs. I mean, it's it's not just an IT function, for example. Everyone in the organisation has access to information. Everyone in the organisation will receive an email at some point in time, and if they were to click on the link in that email, chances are they would actually unleash some sort of nasty threat into the environment. Therefore, everyone in that organisation actually needs to become part of the defence and not just rely upon the technology. And that message hasn't quite got out there yet. I believe most directors and executives are aware of the problem, but they don't fully understand the problem. And in most cases, until they've actually experienced the problem, they don't actually know what actions need to be taken. Now, you're spot on there, and I know that you've written a book, which I've read, and you know, in your book, you sort of cover the, the six sources of cyber threats. How did you define those, and why that specific taxonomy? Um, well, that's not um, – it's not a new taxonomy. It's been around for a very long time. Um, it's called PESL, um, and it stands for um, – the P is for um, political – then the first E is economic. Then you've got social, technological, environmental, and legal. So that's a fairly standard taxonomy. But the issue is that in the IT sector, most people tend to focus on the technological aspect. And in recent times, they've started to realise that there's a social aspect. Um, when you get into um, larger organisations that are more security conscious, for example, like banks or defence, you'll find that they understand the political threats um, because they definitely see those. Um, most organisations have factored in environmental to some degree, but they typically don't correlate um, environmental threats with data destruction, for example. They don't seem to put two and two together and realise that, for example, a tornado could completely destroy every piece of information that you may own. Um, legal threats typically haven't been thought about until recently, uh, for example, with changes in law in Australia in terms of the um, data breach um, mandatory disclosure act that was passed. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is economic. Now, the thing is, if you don't actually... Um, have money in place or money is scarce, that will actually increase the rate of cybercrime. People will actually be finding ways to go and make money and that may mean resorting to breaking the law or, for example, internal threats, which are obviously very prolific these days. It may mean that people inside the organisation turn bad just because they need to survive. Right, I guess, and I guess, you know, the way in which you wrote your book, and I know even in the introduction you specifically said you wanted it to be so people could understand, 
So from the work you do, how do you see attitudes changing towards security threats, particularly at the top end? What I see when I typically work with executives is um, initially they seem to be very reserved. Um, They don't exactly want to talk to me. Um, They do know that there's a problem, but they want someone else to deal with that problem. And typically they believe that IT is not doing their job effectively. So they put all of the blame on IT. Now, when I make them realize that they need to play a role in this as well, um, after all, their personal reputation is at stake and nobody cares more about their personal reputation than they do. They can't expect IT to go protecting their personal reputation. Then they start to realize that there's an element they need to play as well and that they need to help IT. IT can actually solve the technological aspect, but as we just saw, there's other types of threats. For example, social threats, um, that would probably be better suited to the HR function of the organization. Economic threats, finance would probably have a better understanding of those. Environmental threats, perhaps the building or facilities manager might actually have a better understanding of how those work. Legal threats, for example, the law, um, the, the, the law function or legal compliance functions of the organization. So they realize that there are other people that need to play a role in this. And effectively, the entire organization can play a role. And I think that that leads me to my next question about what's the main resistance you see from organizations and executives? The main resistance is that they don't want to do anything about it, that they think that maybe the problem will eventually go away. Um, a lot, there's a lot of faith in, um, um, for example, uh, millennials, um, also known as digital natives, to actually go and solve the problem. Um, after all, most of the, the people that are entering the workforce nowadays have grown up with technology. They actually understand the technology. But when you actually look a little deeper into that, um, I don't believe that we can put the, the problem onto these digital natives or millennials. And the reason being, if you think about, uh, let's go back 100 years when the the motor car, for example, was designed, the first people that actually got access to that were those who were tinkerers, the ones that actually wanted to understand how those work. They could probably pull it apart, reassemble it, um, knew every nut and bolt, for example, on the car. Nowadays, most people who drive a car don't actually know how it works, but they just get in it and and drive. It's the same sort of thing with millennials. Um, They've actually grown up with the technology, they actually understand how it works, but they're not actually going to get inside and understand all of the applications and how the ones and zeros flow. They're just content using it, driving it, so to speak. And therefore, we still need a very um, highly skilled workforce that can actually do the job that's required when we have problems. And so when you talk about millennials, considering I am one, <laughs> what do you reckon it's, like you said, yes, they've grown up with it. Is it just because that they don't know any difference? So they just think that, you know, I, I just don't really care about this on a, on a bigger level, perhaps? Well, I mean, I, I certainly don't want to generalise because there's certainly millennials out there which obviously want to know how everything works and they're quite happy to push the technology to the boundaries and just see where it does break, um, for example. But I would say that the majority of them are there to use the technology. They take it for granted. They've always had the technology. 
But there will always be a few that will obviously want to get into the field of cybersecurity, for example, and they will be good at it because they've seen the technology, they've had a lot of access to it. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I think, you know, you spoke before about having people at the top. How do you recommend that there's buy-in at that top level? There's what you sort of mentioned earlier around people from sort of the older generations that are working at the top. Uh, there's a couple of ways I can do that. So the first way is to actually make them realise that they're not immune to cybercrime. A lot of them think, well, I don't really use technology. Um, I mean, most of them do, for example, even a smartphone these days, for example, is a good example of technology can be broken into. Effectively, your car is a computer on wheels. Your refrigerator is a computer that happens to keep the beer cool, for example. So we all use technology. But when you think about it, I think everyone on the planet probably has some information about them recorded somewhere. Um, their name, their date of birth, for example, chances are there's a birth registry rec record of them somewhere online. Therefore, all of us have something that's at risk. And once they realise that they're not immune, that certainly opens up the floodgates. But the real clincher is when you start to relay it back to the fact that their personal reputation is at stake. Now, if you've actually been... Um, in the in your industry for a very long time, if you've gone all the way up the corporate ladder, you've become an executive or a board member, and it's taken you 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years to get there, that personal reputation has been a long time in the making, yet it can be destroyed in a matter of seconds because of cybercrime. So they actually have a lot to lose. And do you think that's something that that their heads start turning when you talk about their own personal reputation because they have worked 40 years to get somewhere and then all of a sudden that can easily be destroyed? Um, certainly, yeah. So I like to use, obviously, some of the common examples such as Target, um, Ashley Madison, Sony Pictures, um, Talk Talk in the UK and um, Equifax. Those are all good examples of CEOs who actually had spent a long time to get to the top and had it all taken away from them because of a cyber breach. Um, so that helps bring it home. But of course, it's very easy to, again, dismiss it and say, well, this will never happen to me. Um, therefore, the best way I've found is to help them experience it. Now, the problem is you don't want them to experience it when they've actually had a breach. Um, it's a bit like, for example, trying to buy insurance after your house is burnt down to the ground. You're not going to be able to get it. Therefore, you need them to purchase that insurance beforehand. And in this case, you need them to think about it and experience what it would be like to have a cyber breach without actually having one, for example. So we need to create that experience or that simulation of what a cyber breach is like. And it can get very uncomfortable, but it certainly makes them realise just how much they have to lose. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that's probably important to them is obtaining ROI from increased cyber resilience. So can you talk me through what that looks like, if not taking too much of your from your high people, of course? Um, no, that's certainly fine. Um, the best way to describe it is that if you were able to consistently reduce risk, what that is going to do is it's going to increase operational efficiency. I mean, for example, if you don't have people that are constantly unable to work because, for example, you've got a computer virus or you've got some sort of attack that's coming and that's preventing them from work, then obviously you're going to get operational efficiency. The technology is going to be more efficient and the people are going to be more efficient. Now, if you can consistently improve your operational efficiency, that is bound to create a return on investment. 
and therefore we can actually quantify risk reduction, we can quantify the um, operational efficiency, and we can quantify the return on investment. And the best way to think of return on investment is to look at what could happen. And typically, I can give extreme values, but I like to give conservative values. And the actual realistic number is probably going to be somewhere in between. But let's stick with the conservative numbers, which are going to be on the lower side. Um, what we typically find is that all it takes is one breach that you're not prepared for, um, and that is certainly going to cost a lot more than any investment you could make to have prevented that breach from happening. Or if you couldn't prevent it, to at least have been prepared for it and to have dealt with it in the most effective manner. So are people still thinking like there's no point in investing in it? Are they sort of just sort of crossing their fingers and hoping for the best? That it doesn't um, happen some... to them or that it's not being really practical about the situation? Because, I mean, if they look at it, you know, even from a numbers, purely just a numbers perspective, that like you said, if they actually invest in it, like it's a lot lower than if a breach does happen, the amount of money and resources that will take, and then not to mention the brand damage as well. That's right. So I mean, there's certainly a lot there in terms of brand damage, but not just to their company brand, but to their own personal brand. And that's what I like to point out to them, that um, what you can effectively do is use company money to protect your own personal brand because there is a linkage um uh, the CEO's personal brand helps elevate the company's brand and vice versa. Now, in terms of um, getting back to the actual question that you asked, there are a lot more directors starting to take notice of this when it's actually put in terms which they can understand. So if we can actually quantify it and present it as a return on investment as a financial number, they actually have something tangible which they understand. If we actually, for example, use a typical IT approach and talk about the fact that um, you know they will get hacked if they don't do this, and um, you know we need more people and we can make things faster, we can make things better. That's very fluffy. It's not very tangible, and therefore they can't actually relate that to how much they should invest in order to get the best return on investment. Yeah, I totally understand that. And I think that's, it's still an immature area that, you know, with all, you know, the awareness that we're creating in the market, that people are slowly every day starting to understand a little bit more, provided people like yourself and everyone else out there are putting it in ways that people understand. But I guess one last question I do have for you, Andrew, is how old is your daughter now? Uh, my daughter's seven now. So when you look at your daughter now, what you had in your head when you got back from that vacation a few years ago, do you still have the same worries and concerns that you did back then? Is it the same? Is it worse? Is it better? Um, no. So my concerns, I mean, I still have concerns because it's a, it's a very big world and there's a lot that needs to be changed. And there's only one of me, for example. Now, I can obviously recruit a team to go out there, but there's a lot of education that's required in order to change people's perspectives so that we can actually reduce cybercrime to the level of insignificance. But knowing that there is a path to get there certainly makes me sleep better at night. And I, when I look at my daughter now, I believe that she could have a good future if we can get people on board and to do the right thing. Well, I guess we're still working as a united function to, to make that happen. So... I know you've got a book. Where can people, you know, how can people get in touch with you and where can people grab your book from? Okay, so people can grab my book um, by going to Amazon, for example. Um, 
alternatively, they can they can contact me, and I'm quite happy to to send them a copy. Um, best way to reach me would be to go to my website, which is cyberresilience.institute, and on there they can contact me. Perfect. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your insight. I, I got a lot out of it, and I think the people that are listening to this should grab a copy of your book and reach out to you. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us. I hope you got some insights from this episode of KB Cast with me, KB. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play to get every new episode as it's released. And as always, show notes are available from kbcast.com for every single episode. We're building a community, so always love to get feedback, ideas or questions on hello at kbcast.com. 